Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Ish Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by two guests who work for the Jonas Philanthropies. Their work from Jonas focuses on healthcare for nurses and veterans, children's environmental health, and overall health and the climate. We're looking forward to learning more about what Lendry Purcell and Althea Hicks have to say. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Maybe we can start, Lendry, with you. Do you mind just giving us a bit of an overview about what Jonas Philanthropies is, what its mission is, is for, for those that don't know much about it? Sure. We are a charitable fund, and our mission is to help Americans in need of access to quality health care by focusing on um, innovative strategies that are evidence-based. And Althea, what would you add to that definition? Well, we try to meet America's most pressing healthcare needs. So we work in a lot of different ranges of areas, including environmental health and nursing, veterans healthcare, vision. So we try to really work in different areas as well, also veterans healthcare. Andrew, would you mind just walking us through the path you took to getting to where you are now as vice president? I have always had my heart in social service work. Um, I started with Teach for America. I was put in Oakland where I was a special ed teacher, got my master's and two teaching degrees. And I got a call from my grandfather that he was going to start a um, charitable enterprise. He was going to auction off some art that had appreciated in value that he'd been very proud of and had over the years. And as he was moving into retirement, he wanted to give back and do something great for the world. And so he asked if I wanted to sort of join in somehow. And he gave me a small budget at first to focus on um, at-risk youth in the East Bay area, which is what I focused on um, youth mentorship, different areas, school to work programs. And then I went to work for Price Charities in San Diego and slowly have been building my, my skill set from there and just have just stayed engaged. I've always pushed us to be as broad thinking as we can and as progressive as we can. And it's been a great journey. One of the things I always loved about the story is that one big core pillar was nursing and veterans affairs. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about the background on that, why that was so meaningful for your grandfather? Sure. So originally we, we knew he was going to auction off the art and the money was going to go to charity. And at the time I was really pushing for education because I was an educator. And honestly, a lot of money at the time, a lot of philanthropic dollars were going into education. Eli Broad was, was doing a lot of funding and the charter movement was taking off. And my grandfather had a great experience with a nurse who helped him. And he was always so forward thinking. And he just thought, this is a group that I want to support. He was always looking for it uncharted beach, he said, and, and here's a, a, a cohort that touches all of us um, in society, and he wanted to see how he could be of service to nursing. And now, Althea, I'd love to learn a little bit more about how your path ended up winding uh, and crossing with, with Lendries. Well, Rishi, my background is in public health, and so um, when I graduated college, I went and worked with Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and there was a program with the National Cancer Institute, and then I also um, moved into grants management, so that's how I became involved in research, and then also I moved on to eventually work and uh, earn my master's degree in public health and my doctorate in education, and in doing that, I was looking for a position 
that actually allowed me to combine all of these skills together. So when I found out about this position, I applied and went through the process and thankfully here I am. So that was a great experience and it really has helped me use all of my skill sets from those areas. What is it like working in kind of big, big organizations and then more nimble, smaller organizations? Do you feel like as a person, you sort of resonate with one versus the other? While I see the differences, I can definitely appreciate them. And one of the things that I think is important to realize with our program is that although we for example, have a small team, or you know, they may not be on the level of the other organizations. The program is a national program, and you know, we've expanded all across the country. So it's still a large-scale program in the sense that um, we're working to work with so many different people on different levels. Now, one of the things that I've always been struck by, Landry, is it feels like the conversations we've had in the past are always thinking two, three, four steps ahead. And one thing that you're often talking to me about is children's environmental health. Do you mind speaking to how that got on your radar and why that's such a passion for you? Sure. When I had my first child, gosh, 10 years ago now, I was concerned about air pollution. I had read a lot about early exposure to poor quality air. And then we had an issue where at my son's six month um, medical appointment, he was tested for lead exposure and he had pretty high lead. And at that moment, I sort of took a deep dive into every other possible exposures that we could be having as a family. And I learned that there are so many exposures um, that we're exposing ourselves to as pregnant people and our children to. And um, that became a, a deep passion area for me. I think a lot of people assume that living in the U.S., and I certainly take the assumption that things are safe if they're in my home, like, like the water is safe, the food is safe. What have you learned on your journey as you've sort of taken a deep dive on this? Okay, so I've learned that there are over 85,000 synthetic chemicals in common use uh, in everything from our mattresses to our water, and less than 2% have to be tested for health and human safety. So we're living in the toxic soup. We can tell from the, the teeth of our babies and the baby teeth fall out. There's studies, umbilical cords, that we, we have these exposures. And in a lot of cases, we don't know what the effects are. And in many cases, we do. And so there's so much work to be done in preventing exposures and changing our chemical policies. And at this point, a lot of it needs to be market-driven because um, it's very hard in the political landscape to ban a lot of these chemicals. So a lot of it is about consumers asking for safer substitutions. It definitely feels like things have shifted. You know, growing up, Lender, my mom used to cook food for me in plastic bags and now BPA-free. And this is something even my mom looks for on a label. That's just a small data point. But I feel like Consumers are moving to be more conscious of this. Is that your sense too? I think it is. And I think that that also now that we have these mega stores, change can happen pretty quickly when Target decides to get rid of their plastic bottles based on consumer demands and move back to glass. There's a huge market shift there. And a lot of the grant making I'm doing is on groups that are educating um, stores that want to change their policies. And a lot of it, because there are these 85,000 chemicals, we're looking at classes of chemicals instead of whack-a-mole trying to hit them all. So if you can ban the worst classes of chemicals, that's a good place to start. Althea, do you mind speaking to the veterans program that Jonah supports and spell out to folks that may not know, what are the key issues that you see facing veterans and, and that we should be thinking about? 
For our program, you know, we fund doctoral level nursing scholars. And uh, to date, we've funded over 1,200 scholars around the country throughout the United States. And so part of those scholars are scholars who have focused on veterans healthcare or scholars um, working to improve the healthcare in the veterans health community. And so one of the key issues that we often see, which has become more current more recently with the Mission Act over the past year, is that many of the veterans get their health care in the community, but the practitioners in the community or the nurses in the community may not necessarily understand some of the issues that the veterans may be encountering in their health. And so uh, we are working in the veterans healthcare area to try to improve the education of those nurses and the experience so that no matter where a veteran goes to get their healthcare, there's a nurse there that understands the particular uh, health concerns that that particular veteran might be experiencing, whether it's at a veterans administration health center or a community health center. What's an example? I know for myself, when I think of veterans issues, one that jumps out is PTSD. But walk me through it. Like, what are some of the gaps in understanding or knowledge that these nurses have that then lead to poor care? As you mentioned, PTSD is a very popular one, so to speak. Many people are aware of that. And then there's also um, one of the issues related to the family. We've had scholars study basically how to address the family of the veteran. They may not understand the little details about having a family member with PTSD and the nuances of you know, what that lifestyle is like. And then also children, in terms of children who may be a part of a military family. They may be moving around from time to time and they may not have a consistent healthcare record. So that's something that uh, many nurses who may be caring for children should be aware of if they are children that may be part of a military family. Just jumping in with a quick note that there are millions of learners and hundreds of health and educational programs who learn and teach by osmosis, and you can learn more about it and join them by visiting osmosis.org. Now back to our conversation. So one of the themes then between both of your lines of work and the things that you're talking about are the lack of knowledge or training in the formal traditional sense. And I guess, do you feel like there are places where that's changing? Can you point to some examples where there is more training about kids that are being uprooted frequently or chemicals that are in our environment? What are some points of optimism maybe for both of you? Well, one of the things I would say is that I believe many professional organizations are actually developing more trainings, webinars, seminars. They're including many of these in their conferences in terms of identifying these particular subject areas and bringing in experts who have more experience in these areas to share these uh, concerns and practices with their colleagues in the health field. So I think that's definitely one example. And then also, I think many nurses are using social media. And I think that's also something in the health arena that is being underestimated. Whereas social media is being used by professional organizations, many healthcare professionals of all realms, of course, and consumers. So this is another area where there are different topics being shared, different resources being shared. And so it provides more of an opportunity to obtain this education and this information. I was going to go in the same direction, but with an environmental health lens, 
it feels like there's less siloing among groups. So mental health groups now are really interested in the mental health impacts, increased ADHD, different um, impacts from neurological chemical exposure. So there's the connecting those groups. There's more connection, just more connections among disparate groups that see how children's environmental health, the education system is affected by these exposures. Um, also, social media has opened up a lot in terms of connecting groups. And there are a, a bunch of sort of mom blogger types out there. Now, some are more focused on science and some aren't. And I've started a group, Facts, Families Advocating for Chemical and Toxic Safety. It's sort of like a clearinghouse. So we show toolkits on how to keep kids safe at their school, in the home from these toxic chemicals. But there are more groups popping up and more and more are really focused on science and evidence-based science. And you can access them through social media. One common criticism that I see of social media is that it silos communities quite a bit. Uh, people that buy into certain ideas learn more about those things and people that don't simply just don't get exposure. So with that in mind, do you feel like that's happening here or is it quite different where you're seeing across the board nurses and other clinicians really learning more about veterans' issues and environmental toxins? From what I can see, I think that they are definitely doing more collaboration and even you see um, when they are building on their products or building on their resources, that there are things that, you know, they have professionals across different areas. So I think that's one of the key things that is actually becoming more important to have this collaboration in terms of getting more information available to everyone. One thing we're doing um, at JNVH, at Jonas Nursing, is to have ongoing webinars on different topics that are offered to all past Jonas scholars. So they can at any time learn about any new topic related to environmental health related to veterans. It's, it's open to all of the scholar community and we're making those webinars open to, to all nurses as well. You know, you kind of touched on my other question which is about nursing faculty and teachers. Obviously, they're kind of force multipliers for education. I'm curious, have you gotten a, a lot of warm reception from faculty that want to learn more about this stuff and don't feel like they have good access to quality information? In terms of the faculty, it's been interesting because we find that at this point in our program, many of our scholars are faculty or in their faculty position. And so it's still needed. There is still a need. And whether they're seasoned or brand new, um, it's something that we hear across the board from not just scholars, but also our colleagues at other professional organizations, that there is a need for faculty development. And it also crosses degrees. So it doesn't matter if it's in the nursing practice, doctoral nursing practice area, or the PhD research area, there is still a need for faculty development. So that's one of the things that we are working on as well, trying to identify how can we continue to provide more opportunities in this area. Along those same lines, do you find that it's challenging for faculty that may not feel like they can teach this effectively or, or feel like they weren't trained in this themselves? You know, obviously you're talking about things that are now known, but weren't very well known a generation ago. So it just helped me understand what are some sticking points for faculty that are interested in teaching? Well, what I've been hearing in terms of the faculty and the where the gaps may be is one of them is 
not just the knowledge base. For example, we know data changes every day. We've experienced that just even with the current pandemic. News that we had a month ago is now different from news we have today. So of course, keeping up with what's current. Then also the actual ability to relate to the students. We find that sometimes there's a gap in relatability depending on ethnicity and diversity with the scholars or the subject matter or population that they may be serving in nursing. So this is also an area where, you know, we are still working to try to support that area of increasing more faculty a more diverse faculty so that we can close that gap. So those are two things that I would think about as far as what uh, causes that disconnect. I think in, in terms of environmental health, one thing we're trying to do is have better curriculum for nursing faculty about environmental health issues so they have good information that's that's tailored to their audience. And that's something we're, we're looking at from a grant making standpoint. And we've done some work with UCSF on uh, environmental health curriculum for nursing faculty and for um, medical faculty as well. Now we're speaking right now in the middle of July and we're in the throes of COVID-19 and that's been a huge spotlight uh, for both education as well as healthcare. Y'all are obviously at the crossroads of both with your training programs. What sort of things are you seeing right now that weren't really conversations that were even happening six months ago? Well, unfortunately with, um, of course, not just the pandemic, but all the social injustice occurrences that have happened, now there's more of a focus of diversity and inclusion. And while I think that was happening several months ago, I think it didn't get as much attention. You didn't see as many events or attendance at as many events. So now that's definitely one thing that I would say is very prominent in terms of the new conversations. And this is something among faculty, among students, among the nursing community. I think you see it almost everywhere now in the healthcare profession. Everyone is identifying the health disparities that have come or that have actually been occurring for a long time as we know. And then also the uh, health disparities just within the nursing community or the social injustices just within the nursing community. I would add to that from the, the larger perspective of the fund, um, we're thinking a lot more about what does the leadership look like at the groups that we're funding? Is there diversity and inclusiveness in the leadership? Same thing, you know, who are we invested in as a fund? Are we making sure that all of our investments are with groups that are aiding um, a fair and inclusive society? So trying to infuse that ethic into everything we do moving forward. That makes sense. I totally agree. It feels like maybe where sustainability was something that we all started thinking about a year or two ago. A DEI is something that's much more mainstream today to, to both of your points. So with that in mind, I guess one thing I wanted to ask and kind of flag is that a lot of our listeners are future health clinicians or they're going to be future health uh, leaders in, in the fields of public health like the two of you are. Do you mind sharing a little bit of advice perhaps for someone that's just starting in the field and they see you sort of well-accomplished in your respective areas how did you get there? How does someone that's just starting out follow in your footsteps? One thing I would say is remain persistent and identify where 
you not necessarily just think you should be or think you want to be, but also be open to new opportunities as well. Sometimes the opportunities don't necessarily come in the way that you expect them. So while you should have a goal, have a pathway, you know, have a plan, just be open to some of those new opportunities that might also be able to adjust your plan so that you will see the place where you thought you might want to be, you can actually get there sooner or you might get something even better. So, you know, just be open to that. And then also I would suggest definitely be mindful of who you are serving. We talked about, you know, social injustice and diversity. And I think that spans around the country. So no matter where you are at, if you're in a rural area or if you're serving a specific population, always be mindful of your audience because those are the people that you're serving in whatever capacity that you're serving. And you want to make sure that you are meeting their needs and you have the skill set to meet their needs. So those are things that I would say to someone who's working their way in their career. I guess what I would add is same thing, being really flexible. I thought I was going to do education, then this window opened to philanthropy, and now I've become sort of an, an advocate and an activist in environmental health. And, and be open. You don't know where your path is going to lead, but cultivate mentors along the way and make sure you're keeping a list of people that can support you and keep up with those people because you never know when you're going to need help and support down the road. So find your mentors. You know, a lot of young kids get asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I often ask myself the same because I feel like I haven't quite grown up. I'm curious for both of you, what is the time window on how far out you think about things? Like, do you have a three-year plan, a five-year plan? What, what's normal for you? I think about tomorrow. <laughs> I, you know, at one point I used to be very long-term where I would try to think, oh, in five years, in 10 years, I want to do this. But being that, you know, with the current situation and the way things go, you know, while I still have some long-term goals, I try to really plan more in the short term because I realize that what happens in the long term is based on what I do now. And so I, if I focus on what I do now, then that will help me accomplish what I want to achieve in the long term. Looking around my desk, because I, I sometimes have like a mind web or a little visual to help keep me on point where, where, my, where I want to go. And, but I feel the same way with Althea. Maybe it's part, partly COVID, but just in this moment, what, what I'm doing and trying to focus on the importance of, of this moment and see where it leads, because you never know, things keep changing. I used to have a really long window. Now it's like a year to five years. So it sounds like the theme is carpe diem, so seize the day. You know, I really appreciate having both of you on the show. Thank you so much, Lendry and Althea, for joining us. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's program. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>